0: Fatherhood is uh, one of my very favorite things. Uh, it's a blessing to be a dad. Uh, even even now, as the culture around us presents us uh, more than presents, really keeps shoving down our throats the idea of a sort of a genderless society in which these uh, designations just don't matter. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, but. Uh, Fathers are important. We know mothers are important, we all get that, but but fathers are important. Fathers are often portrayed in our culture, in our media, as sort of useful idiots. Uh, We are lovable, but perhaps unnecessary. The reality is quite different. The truth is that children who have actively engaged fathers are healthier, they're happier, they're better at problem solving, they get better grades, they're more confident, they're more intelligent, and they have a stronger sense of uh, a moral compass. It is a blessing to be a father, even, even when it comes to maybe the uh, harder or less pleasant parts, like setting boundaries and saying no, uh, I guess... You know, there's a part of us that thinks because we love our kids, we'd like to just give them whatever they want. The reality is the only way to be a loving dad is sometimes to lay down the law and say no, to set those limits because our children need them. Uh, Love requires that we define moral character and that we expect moral character. And so our Father, our fa- our Heavenly Father, who loves us, defines morality for us, and then has an expectation that we will pursue that morality, that we will be moral people. And so our loving Father defines and judges sin. Now, I know we're, we're not accustomed to having those, both of those ideas in the same sentence, right? You love me and you judge me. Well, here's the reality. The only way that God can be our loving Father is if he holds us accountable to his righteousness. Today, we come into, uh, in our, uh, as we're working through Colossians, we come into this passage where Paul offers us one of his rather ubiquitous uh, no-no lists. Paul is—they're uh, they, sort of strewn throughout Paul's letters—are these lists of sins that Paul says you want to avoid. This stuff. We, uh, as we uh, approach this roster of sins, we we have to deal with what it is that we think about sin, how we think the the Bible is describing sin to us and what it is that Paul's getting at. And so just for review purposes, let's go back and look at the passage that we read last week from Colossians 3, Sorry, the beginning of the chapter. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden With Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Then Paul brings us to this list. So starting uh, in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, in the address of sin, when Paul is talking about sin, one of the things I think we can all acknowledge is that he is not subtle. Paul is a great apologist, a great orator, a great a theologian, a great defender of the faith, maybe not the most tactful. He's not very subtle when it comes to these, this, this sin list, is he? He says, put this stuff to death. That's somewhat definitive. Put it to death. Be done with it. End it. Now, this raises, I think, what, what we can only describe as a couple of errors that sometimes Christians make, but really this is about our society as a whole. We make some errors in our understanding of what it is that the Bible and Christianity teaches about this business of sin. The first error is that there's a tendency for us to take all of the scriptures as if they are these lists of sins, right? So these lists of sins are sort of strewn throughout Paul's letters, Some people, a great many people in our culture, take the Holy Scriptures as if they're just a list of no-nos, a list of taboos, a list of prohibitions, and attached to those prohibitions is a judgment. And so uh, the, the overriding message then of the Scriptures is that if you want to go to a good place when you die, you will avoid these things. The second is sort of the counter argument to that, which is that we can sort of disregard these sin lists that come up in Paul's letters because Jesus loves everyone. And because Jesus loves everyone, he just accepts everything. Jesus uh, Jesus, uh, will accept whatever brokenness we have and will leave us there. Leave us in that brokenness, and it's all going to be okay. We have this sort of accept Jesus into your heart, which I'm not sure what that means, uh, and all is going to be well. It's interesting that we have this language that's so passive. We accept Jesus much the same as uh, I accept the fact that I have to pay taxes. I don't have to like it. I I don't have to love my government. I just accept the fact that I have to pay taxes. I accept that Jesus is who he says he is, and that takes care of it all. A lot of this ignores, uh, well, th- this ignores the whole of Scripture, but specifically ignores the logical progression through which Paul is leading us in this letter to the Colossians. So if we take the first three quarters of Colossians, Paul has spent three quarters of his letter bringing us to this point, this main understanding, that the supremacy of Christ is the foundational driving truth around which our lives are organized. That's what he wants us to get. That is the point that he has built, he has worked on, he has built the foundation for this, he has explained it to us, he has uh, expounded upon it. The supremacy of Christ is the foundational driving truth around which our lives are organized. That is the reality that we should want for ourselves. That my life is organized around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That my home is organized around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That my church Is organized around the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what should be taught. That's what should be championed. That's what we should exemplify. That's what we should live out. And we want to be able to look at our lives and our homes and our churches and find evidence. Or as Caleb talked to you a couple weeks ago, where is the fruit that says Jesus is supreme? in these places Paul says it because of who Christ is because he is supreme in all things and because of who we are in Christ we should set our minds and our hearts on things above then because we are dead to our old life our new life is hidden in Christ, therefore, as he reaches this passage for today, therefore, put to death anything that interferes with the supremacy of Christ. See, one of the things that I think we often fail to understand because we have a sort of simplistic notion about sin. One of the things that we often fail to understand is that sin is not just, an, it's not just an arbitrary list of things that get on God's nerves. God didn't just come up with a list of rules to see, let's see how good these people are at following these rules. These sins exist because they are a challenge to the supremacy of God, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so sin is undermining that supremacy. the natural response to recognizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ is that we begin to put to death all of the things that don't fall under that supremacy. If deceptive philosophies have taken us captive, then we must end them. Now, Last week, when we were talking about deceptive philosophies, we talked specifically about the church and some of the deceptive philosophies that creep into the church. This morning, I want to talk about some deceptive philosophies that uh, are really pretty common within the whole culture. They may bleed over into the church from time to time, but these are really ideas that the whole culture around us has kind of adopted. And here they are. Deceptive philosophy number one, Christian salvation is about following rules. Christian salvation in our culture is generally presented to people as a form of moralism. You, You need to do good, and when you do good, you will be rewarded. And if you do bad, you will be punished. That is a very simplistic view of the Christian faith, but it is one which many people hold. It's an assumption that a great many people make. It's an oversimplification. Uh, It assumes that sin is just this arbitrary list of no nos and that we need to avoid all of those things, and if we are successful enough at avoiding those things, we'll go to a good place when we die. We won't be punished in the next life. Of course, we all recognize that we're not perfect and that none of us are really all that excellent at avoiding all the no-nos on the lists. Uh, But Jesus himself says, I tell you that unless your righteousness, is Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless your righteousness is, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What do we know about the teachers and the Pharisees of the law except that they were really, really good at following rules? They were excellent at following rules. They are probably better at following rules than most of us are. Jesus says there's still something lacking. There's still something lacking. It's, it's, it's all on the outside. It's not on the inside. It hasn't penetrated to the heart. And as we celebrate uh, fatherhood this morning, particularly good, godly fathers, those of us who've had fathers who nurtured us in the faith are all deeply grateful for that. But we have to acknowledge that a lot of us men have resisted being followers of Jesus on the basis of this nearly insurmountable theological argument that you're not the boss of me, that's it, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do, this is our resistance because we don't want to be under that authority. In fact, no one can be good enough, no one can follow the rules well enough to enter into the kingdom of Christ. We all recognize this, and so we come to another deceptive philosophy that's extremely common within a culture and has bled over into the church in so many ways, and that is that grace means that God grades on a curve, right? Right? So now it's not, I I don't actually have to be righteous, I just have to be more righteous than somebody else. More righteous on the whole than other people are. Kind of like the old joke about, you know, if you're being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than the guy you're running next to. We just have to be more righteous than the other people that we're running with. And then that's grace. Grace fixes it all. Never mind that Jesus says you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Never mind that Paul says put to death the things of your earthly nature. The unconditional love of Jesus means he will unconditionally accept every broken thing in my life. Because Oh, and here's a big one. You've heard this from your friends, I guarantee you. If God loves me, then he wants me to be happy. If God loves me, he wants me to be happy. And what's twisted here is that we define what happiness would look like for us, and then we dictate to God what he will do in order for us to be happy. in spite of the moralism that defines the faith for many people in our society, there are some sins, there are some evils, there's some darkness that we never address because we think somehow that sin is tied to our happiness. And more to the point, in the culture as we have come to know it, there are some sins that we now champion as virtues because we have tied them our personal happiness. But we think ultimately it doesn't matter that much because of this deception spiritual pursuits have very little impact on physical realities. Our culture takes God puts him in a box labeled spirituality and that's where he lives. That's where he works. That's where Jesus reigns. My things, the things that I want and the things that I do, they belong to a whole different category. Say, Jesus, you can have this stuff. You can have Sunday morning services. You you can have religion. You can have spirituality, and I will retain ownership and control of all of my things, my pursuits, my wealth, my dreams, my what, you fill in the blank. You have that friend, perhaps online, because there's something about the anonymity of uh, social media that brings this out. But do you have that friend who talks about their sexual escapades, who talks about their abusive use of substances, who goes on profanity-laced tirades about things that they're upset about and then puts up that post about trusting in Jesus? Do you have that friend? I, I have several friends like that. What is happening? We have separated out spiritual things and said this is where Jesus can reign and we have taken physical things and said this is where I reign. This is what I'm in control of. Now these deceptions are incredibly commonplace but what is the truth? Well let's come back to our original statement. Paul spent three quarters of his letter getting us to this point. The supremacy of Christ is the foundational driving truth around which our lives are organized. You see, ultimately, Christian salvation is not about following rules. Christian salvation is about following Jesus. It's about recognizing his supremacy. It's about recognizing that not only is he the boss of everything— but he's actually worthy of being the boss of me. He deserves that role. He is more righteous than I am. He is smarter than I am. He is wiser than I am. And because he loves me with this incredible love that I can barely comprehend, I know that whatever decision he makes for me will be better for me than the decision I would make for myself, and I know that he will not lie to me. He will not deceive me. He will not play me for a fool. To believe in Jesus. I said a couple of weeks ago, the operative question here is really, what does it mean for us to believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus is to take the follow, to make the decision that his supremacy matters and that I'm going to be his follower, to be deliberate about it, to do it on purpose. Grace means that he invites me to follow him in spite of myself, in spite of the, he's worthy, but I'm definitely not. Grace means that he invites me to follow him in spite of the fact that I don't deserve to be there. And it means that he continues to love me and accept me as I make this very awkward, very broken journey towards him. What it doesn't mean is that sin is no longer a problem for us to deal with. So again, in verse 5, Paul says, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now that last little passage, greed, which is idolatry, literally, literally, we have written volumes explaining the relationship between greed and idolatry. But I want to back up this morning and take the broader look at all of this passage. And I want to make this argument it's not just greed that is idolatry. It's everything in the list. Because the earthly nature makes idols of everything. See, far from being an arbitrary list of God's pet peeves, the question here is one of supremacy. Where is God supreme? When we separate out, physical things from spiritual things. We're essentially shrinking the realm of the supremacy of Christ. We're saying Christ can only be supreme in these things and we will be supreme in everything else. Where is Christ supreme then? In heaven? Is he supreme at church? Or is he supreme everywhere over everything? Sin takes some category of our life and says this somehow exists outside of the supremacy of Jesus. This somehow doesn't belong to him. This somehow escapes his attention. And so sin continues to be a problem for us despite the fact that grace covers us in our sin. Sin continues to be a problem for us because sin takes the mind and the heart captive distracts us from the freedom and power that we have in Jesus Christ. And so to set the mind and heart, as Paul describes to us, is to dramatically shift our perspective. To set your mind and heart on things above. Now, We, because we've sort of been conditioned to think about heaven and the heavenly realm in a certain way, we think about things above. Sometimes we think about, you know, the the holy city and the streets of gold and the crystal sea and and uh, all these people with angel's wings uh, floating around and playing harps on clouds and whatnot. That's things above. That is not the operative definition of things above. The operative definition of the kingdom of God it is the place where Jesus reigns supreme. And because it's the place where Jesus reigns supreme, it is higher. But it can exist right here. If Jesus reigns among us, his kingdom can exist in this space. We set our hearts and minds on above things. The place where Jesus is on the throne. The place where Jesus reigns. The the place where we're not foolish enough to continue challenging his supremacy. His supremacy is absolute. So if we raise our hearts and our minds to this higher place, if we raise our hearts and our minds to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we gain a new perspective. We see and we understand and we interpret everything through that higher perspective. And we begin to understand it is not that Jesus doesn't want us to be happy. It's just that Jesus sometimes has a very different definition of happiness than we do. And he wants to educate us. He wants to give us that new perspective. He wants us to see it through his eyes and understand what real happiness, what real contentment, what real joy is. That it can't be found in the broken things of our earthly nature. That it can only be found... His way. So when we begin to look at these lists that Paul gives us, he talks here uh, about uh, sexuality, our, our sexual immorality and our impurity. When we look at sexuality through our earthly nature, we come up with a very different version of sexuality than what God intended. When we begin... With earthly things, when we begin with our lower perspective, when we're focused on low things, we come up with a different definition of our human sexuality than God does. When our minds and our hearts are set on higher things, we gain a perspective on sexuality that is, in fact, pure. When we start with lowly things, when we start with our earthly nature, we get a perspective on wealth and money that is very different than the perspective on wealth and money that we will have when we set our minds and our hearts on higher things. Sin results because we are interpreting God's creation through the creation, through our human minds, our human understanding. God is calling us, Christ is calling us to set our hearts and minds on things above and to begin to understand the creation through His eyes, not the other way around. We begin in this space to view Christ Himself through our earthly nature. That's why so many people in our culture have a very superficial understanding of Christ. That's why. Have you heard this argument that the church needs to change its position on various moral issues because the culture has changed? I've heard a lot of Christians make that argument. We need to change our understanding of these moral issues because the culture around us has changed. What? We don't look at God's righteousness through the lens of earthly things. We look at earthly things through the lens of God's righteousness. He defines it, not us. In making my heart and my mind subject to the supremacy of Jesus, I begin to see, and one of the things that I will see, is that there is no divide between the physical and the spiritual because absolutely everything is spiritual. Absolutely everything has spiritual ramifications. There is nothing in all of God's creation that does not reflect back on God. How we use it and how we understand it, it all comes back to our relationship With Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, put to death anything and everything which draws your heart or your mind away from the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a tough discipline. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Again, maybe not the most subtle message. I don't want any of you uh, in here this morning, or you people online, don't, don't go plucking your eyes out later today. I don't want you making the argument that that's what Doug told you to do. If Christ was being literal, he might have said, both your eyes, right? Because it's not, a, not an instance when one of our eyes leads us astray. It's usually both of them. But he's making the point, if there is any part, any part of yourself, any part of your body, any part of your family, any part of your church that is not responding to to the authority, to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, deal with it now and deal with it mightily. Deal with it powerfully. Deal with it definitively. Leave no part of yourself entrapped by sin, by bad philosophy, or by bad religion. Because the only genuine life is one which recognizes no limitations on Christ's supremacy. That is a hard message. It's easy for me to be critical of the world for its relationship or lack of a relationship with Christ. But here's the hard reality. (laughs) I will never be done putting to death the limitations that I have put on the supremacy of Jesus Not in this lifetime. It is an ongoing, it is a constant effort, it is a, a constant resolve. And here is where we really discover the expansive, inexplicable nature of grace. We really know how much grace we need when we're trying to put to death everything in our lives that undermines the supremacy of Jesus. When we come to terms with the fact that our sin represents the struggle that we have with putting Christ first. But we know that when Christ is supreme in all things, we finally discover the freedom in Christ that's been promised to us. I